Hello and welcome to the Gucci Podcast. On this new episode, we take you behind the scenes of the fourth film created in collaboration with Freeze to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the second summer of love, which explores the rise of electronic music and rave culture around the world. Jen Nikiru, whose film Black to Techno traces techno's explosion in Detroit and Berlin, talks to Freeze Studios senior editor Matthew McLean. The transference of spirit from body to machine. That's how artist and director Jen Nukuru describes Detroit techno, the subject of her film which premiered this week at Freeze Los Angeles. The film is part of the second Summer of Love series. A collaboration between Freeze and Gucci, this series examines the origins and impact of the explosion of music and youth culture around the world 30 years ago, with previous instalments exploring Italo Disco, Acid House in the UK and New York House and Disco. I'm Matthew McLean, Senior Editor at Free Studios, and for this episode of Gucci Podcast, I'm talking to Jen Nakuru about her film on techno in Detroit and Berlin, which is the last in the series, The Second Summer of Love. Welcome, Jen. Hi. So the story of techno that you tell begins in Detroit in the late 70s. Um, can you set the scene for us? What's the story look like? What's society look like at the time? What are, who are the players? Absolutely. I think with um, any kind of exploration of a sound or a scene or a place or a thing, it has to be, if it's to be done right, to be contextualised, like within um, the culture and within um, the generation that it's within. So for me, you know, I was thinking about techno and I was thinking about the long legacy of uh, techno coming from Detroit, thinking about the long legacy of music that exists in Detroit um, and how it didn't just come out of nowhere. You know, like this is a sound that was created in this very specific space um, because there were so many particular elements going around or around that space at a particular time. So I was thinking about like, uh, I was thinking about the blues and I was thinking about the fact that you had a lot of I mean, the kids that were making these were like young black kids in the basements of their house, right? So I was thinking about like the Midwest as a location within America. And, you know, you know, Detroit is like the Fordist capital of, of America. This is automation. This is technology, you know. Um, and I was thinking about, OK, you have people in this city who made their way to the Midwest from the South in America at the turn of like the 1900s, right, to Detroit. And these are people who were making music that were more akin to blues and like rock and roll. And then you have the advent of Motown. Um, and Motown is explosive globally. And Detroit becomes known as Motown, literally, because of this incredible record label and the artists that are coming from this incredible record label. And then you have this intermediary period when Motown leaves Detroit and goes to uh, LA in 1972. And in that time, disco comes up, you know. Um, and in that time, funk becomes a thing, right? And then you kind of go into the late... 70s early 80s and these kids are making this music with their friends that is basically a reflection of their environment the sounds literally sound industrial a lot of the conversations i've been having even with the sound of techno it comes from the sound of automation you know even when you speak to watch interviews of Barry Gordy like he ran Motown like he was running a car plant you know it was like literally like that factory of like he was a hit making factory like literally you know and so you have these kids who are taking in all these sounds and are part, part of this legacy of all these sounds 
and they come up with this new thing, techno, which is an abrit, like which is essentially like a reflection of their environment. The fact that they are in the Midwest, and you have Chicago House going on, for example, you have uh, New York House is happening on some level, and disco is happening, and so then this sound is born out of this space, and it's it's a very kind of it's a strong sound. It's it's an aggressive sound, but it has like this undercurrent of like soul and funk in it. You can hear that legacy within the sound, and then you think about what's happening like politically, like it's the Cold War. Right. This is like Reagan America. Um, And people are looking at ideas of freedom and people are looking at ideas of futurism um, and how to move forward. Um, And you have a sound that a lot of the cats that I've spoken to in Detroit who were making this sound at the time, they didn't know of the sound that they were making to be techno. They just said, we're making progressive music. And, you know, even that language is super important. You know, it's the idea that people were looking for ideas of freedom. People were looking for ideas of uh, different futures. People were looking for ideas of progression. And they literally, as they said, were making progressive uh, music. And I think... Even in that sense, that's when the relationship that seems unlikely, which I've kind of called an an alien alliance (laughs) between Berlin and Detroit happens because you have these young kids who are essentially looking for same different versions of the same thing. But it's ultimately freedom, you know. Um, And in terms of uh, you talk about the the history then of the musical history of that particular place. Can we unpack a little bit further some of the influences or even some of the technologies that produce the actual sound of, of, of techno? Sure. I mean, a lot of these cats were using like 808 drum machines and 909 drum machines. And I'm also thinking about even individuals like Stevie Wonder, who were in the 70s in, on his records. Um, he was, you know, he started to experiment with like synth, you know. And these are also kids who are really as much as they were in a you know very very particular space Detroit they were also through individuals on the radio like the electrifying mojo who is like a Detroit staple who essentially was the first person to um, play on his shows like a combination of different styles of music these kids are listening to all kinds of music right so from Depeche Mode to like craft work to like funk you know the funk of Parliament George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic through to the Motown through to Motown records and they're creating this sound and so it you know you have this really interesting clash um where you have essentially experimentations based on experimentations they've heard of electronic music. So like, for example, the sound collages that were like, um, that, um, oh God, I can't remember his name. He is a German, he's a German sound collage artist, um, escaped from me. But you have like the, you know, them listening to like sound collages, them listening to like Depeche Mode, them listening to like, uh, craft work, but also listening to Parliament Funkadelic and also listening to the Ohio players and also listening to the stuff Bernie Warhol was doing and also listening to Stevie and also listening to Michael and Diana and the Temptations and the Four Tops. So all these things coming together, I think was like, it just created this interesting relationship between machine, so the electronic music that was coming out and what people were experimenting with, as well as like analogue instrumentation as well and them kind of trying to take the and what it feels like I should say you know taking like aspects of analog sounds and ingesting them into this uh into their drum machines and ingesting them into an electronic like binary system 
just created this sound that was like one that people had never heard before, which felt familiar, but also was one that no one had had ever heard before. And is that that kind of slight that uniqueness then that makes it all happen there? Is that to do, do you think, with the the Midwest as this kind of meeting point between these different traditions, or is that something to do with the the fact that it is this industrial economic Fordist powerhouse, and so there's the, always the industrial sound bringing it mm. together? Because it's interesting in the film, there's mm. one point you look at the blues as kind of reflecting the sound of the railway and yes. earlier technologies. So there's yes. this idea of like a kind of oral mimesis. So people are always yes. reflecting sound to their environment. So I'm wondering, is it Detroit as the capital of motor production? Is that really the sort of magic ingredient that brings everything together? Or Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of exploration of uh, mimesis in the film in terms of um, looking at agricultural uh, working patterns and looking at the sound that was coming out of that. And then, you know, thinking about Detroit and automation and and machinery and factories and thinking about the sounds that were coming out from that. And, you know, these are kids who had parents who were working on plants as well, you know, and maybe they even worked on plants themselves or they had family members that were working. Um, on these plants. So these sounds almost become second nature to the environment. Um, It was funny even for me, um, we shot um, some interesting scenes in a steel plant in Detroit where I had uh, three women DJs of three generations from Detroit like spinning in this massive like steel factory. And I remember even we went to go and scout it, I was listening to some of the sounds, you know, and I was like walking around with the um, location sound person and I was saying, you know, like, you know, just listen, because I just want to maybe collect some of these sounds as well, maybe use them somewhere in the film. And even for me, I was, it became so, it it sounded so familiar to things I'd heard on music. Um, And it does kind of, on some level, spill into this whole uh, sense of being able to constantly make something out of what you have as opposed to what you don't have as a means to trying to move forward. So you take the sounds you hear and you take the lifestyle that you're around and you take the environment that you're familiar with and you're making sounds according to that. And I think it's super powerful because to take that approach and also still feel like there's a sense of being able to imagine a new version of a new future um, with what you already have, I think is like, is the ultimate like form of like imagination and like forward movement and innovation as well. Um, And, you know, I think that it's an honest sound, you know, these are people who are making, were making music because they had a form of expression, not because they had like lofty dreams of like commercial success, you know, it was really, it was a really honest sound and, to um, their experience and you feel that and I think that's why like even on a global level the sound just moved you know beyond Detroit you know and became so many different things in so many different places what you were saying reminds me of a really nice uh, quote from you Mm. if you don't mind me quoting you back at yourself Ah. (laughs) Uh, techno is not just a sonic gesture but an anthropological geopolitical and economic gesture which feels out resonant to what you're just saying about mm-hmm. the the motivation and, and the and the means of what what people were people making use of their own um, material and experience. So yeah. maybe if you could just unpack that thought a bit more. Yeah, it's the whole thing of like I always believe that you know things that affect us. I mean, this might sound didactic, maybe, but things that affect us are like a sum of all their parts. You know, like you can't. And this is why, like in in terms of the exploration of the film, I wanted to take more of like a social anthropological approach to techno and really I'm really interested in like as a filmmaker connecting dots that I haven't seen be connected before and so a lot of um, you know you can't have artistic expression without 
it, well, for me, you can't have true artistic expression without it on some level responding to something, you know, who, whatever that is, but it has to be something. And I feel like, you know, art that's that really affects people are art that's responding to society, you know. Um, and so I feel when I say, you know, the, my quote that you, you mentioned, you know, techno isn't just a sound, like it's a way of life. You know, it's 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 a lifestyle, you know, um, and it's one that's born out of, as I mentioned, like being in that particular la- location at that particular time in history with that particular access to technology as well. Um, and, you know, Detroit was a space whereby, you know, you had a really strong black middle class, you know, like these kids had access to, to, to this stuff. And so on some level they could they could experiment, you know. And um, I've heard also stories of uh, really funny stories of like um, some of this machinery being really difficult also to come by because this stuff was fresh, you know, um, and and producers in Detroit almost having a library system with like some of these 808 or 909 like drum machines where like they'll say to someone, OK, cool, I'm going to have it for this period of time and then I'll pass it on to you <laughs> to have it for this period of time. And, you know, like just using what they have, you know, to make music, you know. And um, I think, and when I say like, you know, it's a sonic, political, you know, geopolitical, anthropological gestures because all these things, you know, like by virtue of you, only being able to access this piece of uh, equipment at this time and this piece of this is the and you've already because you've explored it so much you know you know the limitations of this equipment and so you know how to push it and you know how to use it and you know how to for example okay cool I want to build my drum pattern on this and when I get into the studio with x person like I'm going to switch out my drums for like what he has with like his his machinery all that kind of it allows for that kind of process just allows for um allows space for accidental incidental things to take place um and so really with that quote from me that you mentioned it's it what that does is to uh, respect that this sound is one that didn't happen in a vacuum and in isolation but one that was uh, responsive to its environment <laughs> What's interesting in that in making clear how in that way specifically related to that context the sound is, it also resonates so powerfully with a city on the other side of the world, yeah. which is Berlin, which is the other sort of geographical centre that you explore in the film. Um, so can you talk about how, how does the sound from Midwestern America become, uh, how does it transplant itself to to a city in the middle of the Cold War in Europe? Yeah, I think it's because they were twin cities looking for similar ideas of freedom. You know, like this is um, pre-fall of the war, like pre-1989, pre pre-fall of the war of uh, Berlin. And there's a lot of interesting similarities as well. I mean, as a country like Germany is a country of engineers, you know, um, and it's, you know, it has a strong base in automation as well. Like this is a car manufacturing like country. Detroit is the same way. Um, before the fall of the war, there was a lot of empty warehouses and empty spaces. And, you know, there wasn't a sense of um, overpopulation in these spaces. So kids were thinking about how to use these areas to express the frustrations that they were feeling. Similarly in Detroit as well, you know, there were a lot of places like downtown and in and around the city that were just completely like, 
just left, you know. Um, and these spaces became like their meccas, basically. Um, I kind of I talked about it as a, uh, you know, for them, this is this is church, you know, in both these two cities. Like you have um, the space of fellowship literally is the dance floor and the DJ is like the God, you know, like these are these spaces that kind of act like that. Um, and I think also, you know, politically as, as well, um, Germany on some level had um, parallels to um, the experiences that were... That, as I said, that were taking place in the Midwest. So you do have like situations whereby kids are not happy and they're frustrated with what they've seen and they don't have the same level of, to some extent, complacency that their parents' generations had and they want to do something about it and they want to interact with other things and they're not afraid of the other and they're not afraid to go beyond and they're hungry for freedom, they're hungry for newness and they needed something to help them express themselves. And so these kids... Like, first of all, they're in the country where, you know, you do have artists like Kraftwerk making music and then they hear a sound like techno, you know, that's coming out of America. And also it's like this, the you know, it's this foreign sound, but it's so relatable to the experience. And this is also a sound that, you know, is instrumentation led. So it's not a sound that they, is vocal. You know, there's vocals. Right. So what it does is it allows for space. It allows space for um, individuals to find themselves within it and to explore, you know, and to find their pocket. Um, and I, so I think on that level, like, there's this incredible, as I said, like this incredible alien alliance <laughs> between Detroit and Berlin that on the face of it may not be so obvious, um, but it's, it's definitely there. Does it end... And this is a question out of sure. curiosity. Does it go, does it end up, does the relationship end up going backwards? Does Berlin have an influence on Detroit in later years? Or or are Detroit people aware, at least, that they mm. have this audience? And I mean, the music makers are. I mean, I think what's what's really been interesting, like, in this whole process is discovering that Detroit was the place of innovation and uh, was the space that created this sound. And Berlin ended up being the capital of uh, the fandom right. of the sound. So you have a lot of people in Detroit who, particularly at that time, didn't even know techno existed and was just like, what is this, like, annoying sound? Like, what is this thing? Um, but then you have these young kids, like, being flown out to, like, Berlin, like, in the 90s, particularly for, like, six figures, you know, to play in these uh, in these spaces in Berlin and the sound over there becomes anthemic, like, you know, like, they're, like gods you know in these spaces so I think that's something that's really been interesting on some level as well to me is finding out how beyond the creators are pushing out the sound in these spaces how the audiences have been react have reacted and I think a lot of the transference beyond what I've mentioned a lot of the transference of um, this relationship or this crossover with this relationship happening is because Germany particularly Berlin was really just like nimble to hearing this like they just wanted this music and they very much were ready to embrace it, you know. Um, and and so that's really what, I guess, on the more on a more actual level, like that's what really brought these two cities together. You talked earlier about uh, wanting to join the dots. And one thing that strikes me in the film is a. Uh, the way that the story you tell in includes not just figures that even people without great acquaintance with Detroit techno might know of, like the Belleville Three, you also explore 
uh, very consciously, it seems, women in techno or, and the queer aspects of the scene. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that, telling the account in that full way, whether you felt the need to set the record straight, as it were. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. The film, on some level, unfolds like, and I said this is really, sometimes I, I like describe like the work I do as like cosmic archaeology sometimes, like which, and I'll break it down is in the sense of like this film, for example, unfolds like, it's almost like a relic finding of a Detroiter's Friday night watching pattern. So it's almost like if you were to slot in a slot in a tape and be like push play on what was recorded from like 6 p.m. in the evening to like 11 p.m. at night, you get like this feel, you know, on, on some level. And you can literally feel like that level of like flicking through all these things that are to do with techno and some connections that seem almost like unlikely um but are very much interlinked um so in terms of like you know me making me making um an effort to make sure like uh the queer perspective is included or 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 a woman's perspective is included is is, it's not even as intentional as that as just wanting to tell the story of what was going on in the time so you have people who would people who were into night clubbing were always into hair so you have people who would go out and get their hair done. So, for example, I have some like VOs where people are talking about like my mom told me like there used to be this 24-hour hair salon. So you would go to like the Music Institute, right? Or you'd go to heaven and you'd sweat your hair out and you'd go and get your hair done at like whatever time in the morning, right? And so it just happened to be that people that were into clubs in Detroit were always into hair. And then it happened to, and you know, by virtue of time, we forget this, but a lot of club culture was you know, really much and globally, you know, was really much um, club culture came out of like gay and black, you know, people going to clubs. Right. And so at that time, people who were breaking these records, they were in gay clubs. Right. So that's where you would go to hear like these progressive, as they described it, progressive sounds or things that were different. And I was speaking to Stacey Hotwax Hale, who is like a, they describe Detroit as one of the godmothers of like house music. And she was saying to me, like, you know, she would play in this one club and they would give um, the queer night the least favourable day, which was like a Monday, right? But then all the bar staff, like, in this location would work, like, you know, like, every day, regardless of what, what was going on and on what night. And um, so, she, you know, she'd pack out, like, these clubs, like, on a Monday night, like, playing this progressive music. And then it would come Wednesday and the bar staff were like, man, can you play the stuff that you were playing <laughs> on Monday? Because that's the good stuff and that's the stuff that we want to hear. So I think by virtue of me including these like anecdotes or like these stories or these perspectives, it's more so really just kind of wanting to give the audience the fullest sense possible of what was going on and what, you know, connecting the dots, you know, and helping explain, okay, if you see this person on the new dance show in Detroit and they have that hairstyle and they're dancing like that to Kraftwerk or Cybertron Clear. These are all the things that happened before they stepped into that place and, you know, to create the vision of what you see. So I think for me, it's more so just giving people um, nuggets of um, the different facets of the sound and the space to help paint um, a fuller picture and really just understand, as I mentioned earlier, that like, it's not just a sound, it's a culture, you know, it's a lifestyle. So, um, yeah. I wonder from that, um, in terms of then painting the picture or the cosmic archaeology that you're doing, what you've actually done in the film is not just 
play the VHS tape from <laughs> 6 to 11. And then yeah. it's not, while you do use archival images and your own yeah. research, it's yeah. also um, contains some very powerful restagings of historical scenes or scenes of the time, as well as sort of imaginative sequences. So I wonder if you could talk about why you chose that approach for this film, mm. maybe that connects with mm. the films you made before and, um, yeah, and, and how you came up with some of the imagery. Absolutely. I'm always trying to, within my work, have an intergenerational conversation and have a conversation on a level that connects past, present and future as an understanding of like where we are now. And so I always like to have in my works so far anyway um, there's there tends to be a conversation between the archive and the shot footage um, so for example we have some you know there's there's aspects that connect like say um, some of the archive you see in like heaven for example of the kids like voguing down like to like techno beats and stuff like connected to like voguing today like queens who are older you know, um, and who survived through to connecting that with the type of dancing you see in these clubs to like the movement of like Zulu warriors, you know, like we have all these kind of interesting links going on. Um, and then in terms of how I was using within the film or the spaces you were shooting in within the film, um, you know, there's like malls that like Carson's Mall that like was just completely like just is this massive mall that no one <laughs> is not used anymore. And it was like, hang on a minute, there must be some residue left here, like some energetic residue left here. What would it be like to have people doing movement um, that's attached to Detroit in this space? So you have people like doing what they call the Detroit JIT which is a dance that people would do to techno music um, in these spaces or like, um, you know, trying to create scenes that felt like or felt as close as possible to like what the sum of what Detroit is, like staging a scene of seeing three women or three different generations of like DJs from Detroit in a steel plant in Detroit. And you can see people just working in the background and these women are just spinning in the midst of all of this. Um, really just trying to create moments like that speak to a lot of the feeling um, that is Detroit you know that was Detroit and that is Detroit so yeah I think a lot of like the shot footage that's featured in the film is that it's speaking to I, I selected spaces and people um, and moments that speak to um, a Detroit that was but also that a Detroit that is It seems to me that in scenes like um, the mall scene something of what's going on is a kind of almost reclamation in a funny way of um, certain space and certain of history and, and drawing the dots you're kind of giving it back to, to people mm. um, and it just made me think of the another quote I took from you <laughs> yeah. in the start of um, the conversation uh, about the transference of spirit from body to machine and the idea of that as a reclaiming of something um, mm. so I wondered if you could draw some of those thoughts about that relationship between spirit, body and machine and, mm. and how that operates in the film. Yeah, it's such an interesting, spirit, body, machine is like such an interesting topic because it's like, there's like two really passionate sides <laughs> to what understandings of what that could be. But within the film, like we were looking at the ideas that how, um, you know, the connection to the machine is more so a form of um, energetic or spiritual transference as opposed to a form of alienation. So like the whole idea, like Adorno would state, the increased machinization on society leads to a sense of 
us being detached or, you know, ideas of using technology means that we don't remain closer to ourselves or we it, it, it takes us out of ourselves um, and become something that is doesn't have, you know, doesn't have spirit. But then you speak to producers, techno, techno producers such as Derek May, and they will tell you that, you know, that their work completely defeats that idea. And the idea that really what... Um, what they're doing with technology or the use of technology actually allows them to open up aspects of themselves that maybe they wouldn't explore without that that context, you know. And rather than it, technology taking on a separationalist (laughs) um, position, what it does is it actually increases, there becomes more of a symbiotic relationship with the machinery whereby this is more so a transference, you know, an ex- and an extension of self rather than um, something that w- something that's a separation from self, you know. Um, and so we explore that in the film as well, um, how the two can sit side by side um, and how they can be one and the same. So, yeah. And do you feel your camera is an... Ex- is it- you transfer your spirit to that Ooh. machine. <laughs> that's a loaded. That's well, a you big make, you one. Mentioned, you mentioned yeah. before about two passionate sides. So yeah. I'm wondering what's the other side. I mean, I don't know. Um, for me, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, for me, um, and it's interesting you say you asked me this question because I've spoken about this, but in a different context where I've said that I said that you know the idea is that we should be using technology to, and it sounds so like simple to say this but we should be using technology to help ourselves on some level and the, the technology should be used in order to um, get us closer to being connected like to ourselves so I very much will say you know there's no point using a particular lens on the camera if we're trying to for example shoot something that's intimate this is just me speaking generally like yeah. you, you want to use something you know the tools should be there for you to um, create a closer relationship to to spirit, and that's why I feel like with the quotes from like Derek May or like the the ideas from Derek May that come out of like, look, I'm going to use this machinery, and this machinery is a, an extension of me, or I'm going to use it in a way that allows me to um, get closer to spirit, and I'm going to use it as a way, I'm going to use it as a tool of energy transference. Right. And so that's how I feel like with the camera for me, you know, and that's why I have a very particular way of um, of working. And I very much am only interested in using tools that get us closer to feeling, you know, Um, and I'm interested in um, that's my core thing is feeling, you know, because I feel like it's kind of like that Nina Simone quote, like people forget what you say, people forget what you do, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And we often say it where we're like, oh, I heard this one track. I can't remember how it goes, but it's so good. But you can't remember how it goes, but it's so good. And it's because you have an attachment to the feeling the track gave you, right? And so on that level, I feel like that's kind of where technology, um, that's kind of like where my interest in technology is. Like, And I feel from my explorations and my research, that's how I feel like a lot of these a lot of the producers were um, taking that approach as well. Like, how do we use these tools to get us closer to ourselves and to spirit and to feeling? So in talking about the techno scene, both in Detroit and in Berlin, you talk about the the hunger for freedom, 
the progressive aspect of the sound and in parts of the film you sort of reference kind of specific Afrofuturist sort of manifestation of that aspiration. Um, and looking now, Detroit and to say except Berlin probably aren't cities now that 20 years ago people hoped they'd be. So I guess, um, I guess, or to rephrase the question, mm. how, how do you want the audience to feel from this film? What are they Ooh. taking away? Is it a hopeful story? Is it a poignant story? Is it somewhere in between? I don't think it's my right to say. I say that because I always, um, I always say to people, look, I'm making film, not propaganda. So, like, it's not for me to... All I, all I do is present the ideas. And I have my reading of the film. And, I, and this is in, in all my work. Like, I have my reading of the film, but I allow the audience to have their reading of the film. And I think we all come into things at whatever stage we're at in life, right? And so your reading of it today may be different to your reading of it in 10 years, you know, when you're in a different space. And so I hope, my my only hope, if I can say, is that people come and are curious. I think for me, curiosity is, is the main thing. But I, I couldn't say... Um, how I would want people to feel. But I am interested in people telling me how they felt (laughs) after they saw it. Um, But you feel that there's a lesson, maybe not so much then from what people take away from the film, Mm. but from the story of techno, as you understand it, Mm. um, that that we can apply to our culture now? I think think if if on that level then, I would say... um, I would hope culturally nothing happens in a vacuum, right? And I think it's the whole understanding that um, certain results come out of, you get certain results based on a certain set of circumstances. And it's, um, there's an analogy I want to use, but it's not coming to mind. But essentially that techno is a sum of all these parts. So you can't have techno music if you don't have the you know, if Detroit wasn't what Detroit was. You can't have techno music if you don't have what the legacy of black sound was, right? You can't have, you don't have techno, we wouldn't have had techno music if the political landscape wasn't what it is, wasn't what it was at the time. So I think it's the whole under, I think if anything, I would want people to be curious to connect, I would want people to be curious to keep connecting the dots. Mm. I think that's kind of like my, my one thing I would say. To do the cosmic archaeology. Yeah, to do the cosmic archaeology. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much, Jan. And Jen Nikiru's film, the fourth in the second Summer of Love series, premiered this week at Freeze Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. Head to Gucci.com or Freeze.com to discover more about the four-part film series.